Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. I have some exciting news for you. I've teamed up with my friend and colleague, Marissa Martino of Pause and Reward to present a three-part webinar series called The Connection Summit, Prioritizing the Human-Canine Bond for Successful Behavior Change. The series runs from February 23rd to March 9th. It airs Tuesday night each of those weeks at 5 p.m. Pacific. The first class is on the general mindset shift needed to allow focusing on the human canine bond to facilitate behavior change. The second is all about my concept, the four steps to behavioral wellness. And the third is Marissa's six principles of relationship building for dogs and their people. So I hope you'll join us and there's a registration link in the show notes. Hey friends, today we're going to talk about classical conditioning and operant conditioning and kind of what they are and how they work together. And the reason that we're talking about this is because y'all are still confused <laughs> about it. I get a lot of questions about it. I get a lot of questions that indicate a lack of understanding of how these processes work together, okay? An example would be, should I train this through classical conditioning or operant conditioning? If you ask me that question, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of the fact that both of these things are always happening all the time and understanding them well and really understanding how to apply both of them while you're actively applying one of them is vital to good dog training and especially vital to good behavior change. So let's talk about what they are first. Classical conditioning or also known as respondent conditioning is the process by which learning occurs through repeated stimulus pairing. And here's the really important thing. It affects respondent behaviors. And I think that's the thing that's not really talked about that much. So if we go back to the classic example, um, Pavlov's dog. So um, Ivan Pavlov kind of, he didn't create classical conditioning, but he kind of discovered it by um, teaching dogs that if they heard a bell, they were going to eat food. And so he would ring the bell in order to cause salivation in the dogs. And the reason is he was collecting dog saliva for a totally different purpose. Um, and so he figured out that if he would ring the bell, give food, ring the bell, give food, the dogs would start to salivate when they heard the bell. The salivation is the respondent behavior that was trained through that classical conditioning, that pairing of bell and then food. Now, if we were in Pavlov's lab, I guarantee that the dogs also had operant behavior change in response to the bell. Okay, so I'm picturing a dog that is dancing his little feet and whining as well as salivating. And so the behavior that has been 
altered via classical conditioning in this scenario is only the behavior that is respondent that the dog doesn't actually have conscious control over, which is that salivation. His pupils might also be dilated. Um, he, you know, he may have other physiological responses to hearing that bell that he doesn't have control over. But here are the behaviors he has control over. He's dancing his feet and he's whining. And he might, maybe he's spinning in his kennel because this is the most exciting thing that's happened to him because he lives in a laboratory. All of those behaviors are the operant behaviors. And we could, here's how we know they are. We could teach the dogs to, at the sound of a bell, go lie on a mat and then they would have the food. We could easily do that and then we would eliminate the tap dancing and the whining and the whatever, but we would not eliminate the salivation because the salivation is not under the dog's conscious control. It is not being reinforced by the production of the food so much as the tap dancing and the whining are being reinforced by the production of the food. So it is learned through association, not reinforcement or punishment, not consequences. Okay, still following me. Let's talk about what operant conditioning then is defined as learning through uh, consequence. So conscious or operant behaviors are strengthened or weakened via reinforcement or punishment in operant conditioning. And so, yes, if we go back to the dog in Pavlov's lab, he is learning through both classical conditioning and operant conditioning. What matters to Pavlov in that moment is the salivation. He doesn't necessarily care that the dog is tap dancing or whining, or he may have cared. That may have been totally irritating to him, but he didn't understand a process where he could change that because, you know, that science was not at the forefront of his mind. What was at the forefront of his mind was simply producing that salivation. And so always we've got classical conditioning affecting respondent behaviors okay that's why we say we've always got pavlov on our shoulder because that's always going on when we are engaging in operant conditioning procedures and i think that's pretty well known i think people understand that when they're teaching the dog what to do they're also teaching the dog kind of how to feel for a lack of better of a better way to explain the respondent piece um, that's why, you know, positive reinforcement based trainers are, you know, really into using positive reinforcement, food rewards, toy rewards, those kinds of things, because we know that it produces a dog that is kind of happy and enjoying himself to put some constructs on it versus if we use maybe aversive tools to suppress behavior rather than, uh, rather than reinforce what we want. We know that we're te we might be teaching the dog to kind of feel yucky or associate yucky things with us or the stimulus we're trying to um, change his responses to, etc. But the other way around is also happening. So if you think that you are engaging in a classical conditioning procedure like Pavlov was, Skinner is also on your other shoulder always because operant conditioning is also always there. That's why the dogs, and again, I wasn't in Pavlov's lab, obviously, so I don't know what the behaviors were that the dogs were doing. That's just what I'm imagining they were doing um, because it's probably what my dogs would be doing if they were anticipating food. So Skinner's always on our other shoulder, even when we think we are doing, we are carrying out a classical conditioning procedure. And what that means is that operant behaviors are being learned, even when we believe to be 
only affecting respondent behaviors. And I'm going to go so far as to also say that we as dog trainers need to always, always be thinking about that. We need to never kind of mistake our procedure for being purely one thing or the other. And that realizing that maybe the prong collar feels yucky and the dog could associate the pain from that collar with the appearance of the other dog, if that's what we're using to get him to maybe stop, say, barking and lunging at the other dog. Um, If we know that and therefore we choose to use food because he might then associate with food, food with the other dog and feel great about other dogs, if we know that, we also need to be equally aware of the behaviors that we are training, the operant behaviors that we are training when we believe to be engaging in a classical conditioning procedure. So let's go through um, three different examples that I see commonly um, approached with, I'm putting this in quotations, pure classical conditioning to begin with. So the first one I'm going to look at is one that I just referenced a second ago, which is barky lungy behavior at other dogs. So let's call this dog-directed leash reactivity. So the dog sees another dog and he starts to bark and lunge at the other dog. And I'm not even going to go down the road of whether or not the dog feels good or bad about the other dog. Um, because I think it's irrelevant and I would treat it the same way. And I know people disagree with me on that, but the people who disagree with me are going to say they would go classical conditioning for the dog that doesn't feel good about the other dog. And they would go operant conditioning for the dog that does feel good about the other dog. And what I'm standing here arguing is that you're using both all the time. And so you need to be smart about um, the fact that both things are in play always. So a lot of positive reinforcement-based trainers will start with a classical conditioning procedure with this behavior. So the other dog appears and I start shoving food in my dog's face. And if I am trying to be a very clean trainer and maybe have this set up to where the other dog appears, I shove food in in my dog's face, the other dog disappears, I stop shoving food in my dog's face. Um, Gene Donaldson called this forever ago the open bar, closed bar procedure. So... When the other dog appears, the bar is open, we are shoveling food in the face, and when the other dog is out of sight, the bar is closed. Nothing wrong with this as a starting point in a lot of cases. It may not be how I start, but it's not, um, that's, I'm not here to kind of pick apart that methodology. What I'm here to pick apart is the fact that we do need to be mindful of the behaviors that begin to emerge in this process, okay? So... If you're doing that, then your goal is likely to make the dog see the other dog and expect food, okay? So to change his association and to be very clear, this is a counter conditioning procedure, which is just a form of classical conditioning. That means that you are changing the dog's feelings rather than um, just producing feelings for an unconditioned thing. So a thing that doesn't matter to the dog. So the thing already matters and we want to make it matter in a different way. If I want to change how the dog feels, how do I know that I've changed how the dog feels? And perhaps the dog does salivate at the sight of the other dog because he anticipates the tripe that's in my feed tube that I'm going to shove in his face through his muzzle when he sees the other dog. But that's not the behavior I'm after, right? So that's a respondent behavior, but I can't see it. I can't gather information about it very well. And it doesn't tell me 
that what I'm doing is working. What tells me that what I'm doing is working is the dog sees the other dog and turns to me for food instead of barking and lunging. And what is turning to me for food? Is that a respondent behavior? No, that's an operant behavior. And so that was trained, that was learned via operant conditioning, not classical. Okay, so the classically conditioned behaviors are the respondent behaviors that I can't see. I can assume that they're happening, but I can see the operant change in behavior. And that's the behavior that I really want to pay attention to. And so at that point, I am wise to begin to select for that behavior. Because in the beginning, if you're doing a quote-unquote pure classical conditioning procedure, when the dog sees the other dog, you just shove food in their face. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They could be screaming and lunging. Ideally, even if they're screaming and lunging, you're squeezing that tripe into their mouth, okay? Until you start to see that behavior shift into see dog turn towards mom for tripe. When you see that, what's really important to do is to start to be selective. Now you are selecting for the operant behavior. I'm going to use Susan Friedman's words here. Dr. Susan Friedman said, select for the operant behaviors that happen in the flow. So like in the flow of your process, operant behaviors begin to emerge. Then you want to start to select for those. And you are wise to select for those rather than try to train a brand new thing. So that's reactivity as an example. Hopefully we're all on the same page here. Now let's talk about responses to noise. This is not a noise phobia episode and I already did that with Dr. Karen Overall and I really recommend that you all go back and listen to that one if you're curious about noise phobia because it's very multifaceted as is dog-directed leash reactivity. And so I'm not gonna go into an entire behavior change protocol here, just like I didn't do for reactivity. I basically just want to explain the work togetherness of the classical and operant conditioning. So I'm going to call this noise responsiveness. Okay, so the dog responds in some way to loud noises or specific noises. Um, I'll take my Aussie ghost as an example. When she hears fireworks... Um, or gunshots, or something like that, or thunder too, she barks aggressively at it. So as far as she's concerned, she, if I'm anthropomorphizing here, I think she wants the noise to stop and go away and stop threatening us. And so she barks really aggressively at it. And so let's say I would like to change that response, a really classic, a really common Um, to not confuse words here, a really common way to start going about that is to provide a really high value reinforcer. And if you're doing it really, really intelligently, you're actually engaging in a ritualized reinforcement pattern at the sound of the loud noise. So when the trigger occurs, you engage in a ritualized reinforcement pattern, which could be running to a cookie jar that you then reach into and throw tons of food everywhere. So we call this boom scatters in my house. Okay, so the boom happens, you run to the cookie jar and you open it and you throw food everywhere and the dogs run around and eat food off the floor. Now, what operant behavior would I hope to see emerge from this? Well, I'd hope for the dog to run to that cookie jar or to look to me for the cookies. And 
if I just continue to pelt food at Ghost while she is barking, I am not selecting for the behaviors that I want to see happening. But if I were trying to attack this from a purely classical standpoint, I would just pelt food at her when the, when the booms happen. Could you redirect her to the behavior of simply eating? Okay, so she's barking and then you provide food and she goes, oh, I eat. Eating is also an operant behavior. So absolutely you could. And then you could just continue feeding as long as she's eating to reinforce the previous food that she ate, um, food eating behavior, if that makes sense. So I want to be very careful about selecting for behaviors that are happening in the flow. And with my young dogs who experience this from puppyhood who do not have strong genetic propensities for strong noise reactions... This works great. They look for the boom cookies. Okay, they look for boom scatters. They run to the cookie jar. For my dogs that have long established patterns, some other patterns may emerge that are less helpful, which is where go listen to the noise phobia episode if you're curious about a more complete treatment plan. But basically, because Ghost is capable of stopping her barking and running to the cookie jar, um, and she has demonstrated that, I now select for that and do not simply throw food while she is barking, okay? So the boom happens, she looks at me or looks at that cookie jar, I do the scatter for her. She starts barking, I'm just feeding the other dogs instead, okay? So whether you agree with that or not is neither here nor there. That's me trying to be aware of both processes all the time. Here's another problem that shows up with noise reactions and trying to take a classical only approach is that if the booms are to be repeated, classical conditioning is a funny thing in which it has to happen in, in a specific order. You have to have counter conditioning has to go like this. Bad thing first, great thing second. If it's great thing first, bad thing second, you get this backwards conditioning effect where the, you actually poison the good thing. So one of my dogs is afraid of the boom scatters. If I start scattering for a different reason, which I may do, right? UPS is here, here, everybody eat food so that I can get the package off the, off the front porch. I have one dog that sees that and becomes suspicious that there might be booms and starts to engage in kind of fearful behaviors that are operant behaviors. Oi, right? So that can happen if there are gonna be repeated booms, which is why boom cookie there's another boom, here's more cookies, can get you into trouble because an operant process can be learned here, which is where the dog sees your response to the boom as a cue to begin to engage the problematic behaviors in anticipation of another boom. Oi, that's why no noise stuff, one of the reasons noise stuff is so hard. And then finally, I think one of the most common things that I hear misunderstandings regarding these two processes is in husbandry work, specifically nails, specifically nail trimming. I hear a lot of people who want to go, you know, they believe they are going classically first. So they believe they are classically conditioning the dog to accept nails first and, and to accept body handling or nail handling first by touching a nail and feeding and touching a nail and feeding. And again, you're not doing one or the other. So you need to pay attention to what behaviors the dog is doing. Because even when you just pick up a, a foot or a nail and give a cookie, the dog's doing a behavior. They're allowing you to handle their foot. So you are training them to allow you to handle the foot. 
And you really are going to get in trouble if you consistently pick up that foot, they pull it away, and then you feed. Now you are training them to pull their foot away from you, okay? So I am a huge fan of using food to train cooperative care because of the classical conditioning piece that will happen. But I am not a huge fan of not paying attention to the operant behaviors that are at play from the first second that you begin. So I'm going to give you a few different examples where you might think classical conditioning is the only thing happening here. But if I don't pay attention to the operant behaviors, I'm going to get into trouble. So my puppy Rhea is uh, just just turned 14 weeks. And so she had to go to the vet and it's COVID. And so I had to just hand her over. Not ideal. I don't like this. I don't like that at all because I like to really carefully orchestrate my puppy's first visits to the vet so that they are positive experiences. And I have no control over it once I hand her over. So what I did was I prepped a licky mat thing for her. So it's just a rubber uh, thing with kind of nooks and crannies that I smeared some dog food into and I partially froze it so that it would last long enough and I said will you just let her lick this while you do her exam and vaccines. If I'm thinking in really really smart classical conditioning procedures here could the licky mat become poisoned? Could she see that and then expect to get vaccines? Because I don't expect the vet to do the vaccine and then put the licky mat down. I want her to lick it the whole time right? I want her to just be on the table licking the thing, having the other things happen. And in this case, what I am hoping is that operant conditioning is happening and she is learning to stand there and eat while the other things are happening. So the operant behavior is stand and eat. And I already introduced her to that concept. I put the licky mat on the counter. I put her next to it. Um, I have a video of this that I'll put in Patreon. And then I did her toenails. And anytime she left, I had a mat there that was uh, non-slip for her to stand on. Anytime she left the mat or left the licky bowl, I stopped doing toenails and I picked up the licky bowl. So we're not doing anything if you're squirming around. Okay, you come back to the mat. I put the licky bowl back down. You start licking it again. And now I'm doing toenails. I am watching those operant behaviors. Okay, if you squirm away from me, if you're not letting me do toenails, you're not going to also be licking. So it's kind of a, it's a, you do this behavior and it is being reinforced the entire time you're doing it because you're licking the thing and I'm doing the other thing. I'm cutting your nails. Are there plenty of dogs that have bad enough histories with nail cutting that this is not going to happen for you? Of course, but she has no history. She is brand new, right? So she's learning, hold still, eat the food, have your nails done. And the report from the vet, and I have no reason not to completely believe her, is that she didn't even flinch at the vaccines. She just licked away at the licky bowl and no big deal. That's what I want to have happen. And I need to be paying attention to the operant behaviors. If I put the licky bowl down and she doesn't lick it or she moves away, my operant behaviors have changed that I want. And as I go and as I teach her more husbandry, I can put bonus reinforcers in the licky bowl as I do harder and harder things. So I brush you a little bit. I'm going to click and drop food into the licky bowl that you're already licking and enjoying. I am thinking operant conditioning here. And classical conditioning is coming with as a tag along because it always does. And because it's food and it's fun and nothing bad is happening. 
the class, the respondent behaviors that are being conditioned are those of regular heart rate, right? Salivation for the food. I can only assume that respondent behaviors of kind of joyous thinking are also being trained. If I instead just try to handle her and then feed and handle her and then feed, but she's getting squirmy and she's moving around and I have not set up my conditions for her to just stay still, she is still learning to move and, and squirm, especially if that's what she's doing right before I feed. Okay, so if they squirm out of your grip and then you feed because you're quote unquote doing this classical, um, you are training them to squirm out of your arms and, and go away. So, so in conclusion, and I hope this didn't confuse matters further, but I'm sure we can have a discussion over in Patreon about it. Both processes are always happening. And if you are not paying attention to both processes, you are remiss. And if you believe you're doing purely one and not the other, you misunderstand these processes and how they work together. So please throw your questions about this over in Patreon. And I hope that this cleared things up rather than confused you further. Cheers. And a few Patreon questions for you. This comes from Kristen. Kristen asks, as I've been peeling the reinforcement onion, I've finally come to realize that until my dog has a solid understanding and frustration-free ability to take reinforcement, I cannot chain other behaviors into our training. Let me just pause right there and say louder for the people in the back. Thank you so much, Kristen. Let me read that part again for everybody. I've finally come to realize that until my dog has a solid understanding and frustration-free ability to take reinforcement, I cannot chain other behaviors into our training. My question is this, given he was a singleton puppy, I was recommended to build frustration tolerance, and Kristen puts that in quotations, at the milk bar by intermittently pushing him off the nipple or by making it difficult for him to latch on as if there were other puppies. I really feel this created a huge issue for us, even though he was literally weeks old during this learning time. I'm curious if you also feel that this could be the source of his current frustration around food. And as a side note, I would never personally do that again with any singleton puppy. It's amazing he still, he still likes me. <laughs> Kristen, um, amazing, interesting question. I really love that you know that taking reinforcement is part of the chain. And so if that part is not kind of baggage free, you don't get to add links to the chain, right? So if that link of the chain is broken, which is the final link, you don't get to add other links. Excellent observation. As far as raising a singleton puppy, I'm not a breeder and I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of different opinions about this. There's a, and, but here's the problem. To my knowledge, it's all opinions. So to my knowledge, there isn't research on what should we do with a singleton to improve its behavior. And if I'm wrong and somebody's got some studies to throw my way, please send them my way. This is how I feel though in general. There is no substitute for what nature would have given him if nature had a choice, right? So nature would have given him a litter of puppies. And there isn't a substitute for that. And so did he associate you with the frustration of not getting food? God, he could have. Kristen, I don't know. In general, I do not like the idea of building frustration tolerance. In general, um, I like to have kind of low stress puppy rearing practices. And so 
Is it that you pushed him off too often? Is it that it was you pushing him off? Is it not related at all? We don't know the answers to any of this. What I do know is that I think we tend to overestimate how much the puppies kind of push each other off of food in those early stages. I know you raised another litter, um, and so I'm wondering what that litter looked like. Like, were they really pushing each other off and taking the nipple from each other? Or were they just kind of maybe squirming bodies next to each other? Um, it's, it's a real question, and I don't know the answer. It is possible that that's part of it. It's also possible that just being a singleton in general was part of it. It's also possible that it's not related. So I have no idea <laughs> is the answer, but I think it's a fascinating question. And I think it's something to think about for sure. There's some other puppy rearing practices that I've kind of raised an eyebrow at lately. Um, one of them being the barrier challenges that are popular in, um, I don't know if they're in Avidog, but they're definitely in puppy culture, where you basically put an X-Pen up and you put food on the other side of it and the puppy has to get around the X-Pen to get to the food. And everything in moderation, I don't think you're going to create a huge problem, obviously, doing this sometimes. But if you produce a lot of frustration around a barrier for a puppy, that if they just push hard enough, they will get relieved for themselves. I do think you are training a kind of resilience that might pay for you in training, but it also may hurt you in other areas of life. So a good pet dog gives up easily when they're frustrated, but a good sport dog pushes if your training relies heavily on frustration. So I think that what we're coming to is that agility practices tend to rely heavily on frustration, which is why then the recommendations are to build puppies that push through frustration, wherein a good pet dog that gives up is a nicer pet dog. Okay, so my dog Iggy will never give up if she thinks there's food that she could potentially get. And so that has led to a dog that can open doors, cabinets, anything to get to food. She'll open a suitcase if there's food in it. And she never gives up in training either. And I did use a lot of heavy frustration laden methods with her because she's 12. And that's what I learned at the time. And it's still what most people are doing, that kind of stuff. Um, it's just not what I do anymore. And now I've got a puppy who or not a puppy, I, I'll talk about Felix next. Felix is five. His breeder did do a lot of interactive stuff. She did do barrier challenges. She did all that stuff. But he was also in a litter of two. So not a lot of fighting at the um, at, for milk. He does give up easily. And I can leave him in the kitchen with food on the counter and know he's not going to eat it. So he's a nicer pet dog in that regard. But um, he gives up, he gets frustrated faster and gives up easier. In training. I also think it has to do with a male versus female situation. So I don't know, but there's a lot of speculation and it's a really interesting question and it produces more questions for me. And so even though I couldn't answer it, I appreciate you asking it. Next one's from Sam. Sam asks, I want to hear a, a timeline of what you expect your dogs to know by what age, especially in relation to agility. For example, a timeline such, such as the first four months is house training and crate work focus, then maybe six to eight months is foundations for agility. But what type of foundations, reinforcement markers, maybe some of that cone stuff that everyone is so attached to, whatever, etc. 
when do you expect or want them in a group training session? Is this age skilled, age or skill dependent? Basically, I want an episode of timelines and planning during third dog paralysis. <laughs> this is clearly selfish since I have a young dog and feel lost. So I may put this on the roster for a full episode, Sam, but it won't be for a while because I've got a hefty schedule um, coming up. So here's my basic answer that you're probably not going to like. It depends. It depends on what the puppy is showing me. I teach them what I think they're ready to learn. Here's what that means. It usually means that the first four months that I have them is learning how to relax in a crate, learning to be house trained, learning to respond appropriately to people and other dogs out in the world, and learning to recall and learning some husbandry stuff. That's probably the first four months that I have them most of the time. If they show me they're ready to learn more than that, like Rhea is very, very, um, she's smart, she's thinky, she likes learning and she responds really fast to shaping projects, then I will teach them some tricks. Most of those tricks are going to be, are going to help me later to teach other things. Like I'm teaching her front and back foot targeting because those are going to help me to teach other things later. I'm teaching her to walk backwards. I'm teaching her to pick something up. These are all things that I'm going to put to work later for other, for real things. She doesn't know anything specific to agility and she will start to learn things specific to agility as she kind of shows me she's ready to learn those things. But I want to know, do they have really good control over their own bodies and do they have good reinforcer skills? So when those two things happen, she, she will learn some stuff specific to agility. Um, she's a different kind of dog than I've ever had. So her body is growing and maturing in different ways than a border collie's body does. So I'm going to err on the side of caution as far as actual agility skills. And I'm going to teach her all the reinforcer skills she's going to need in the meantime. So she's learning food and toy reinforcers and she's learning about the food robot right now. As far as your question of group classes, that's also dog dependent for me. She's in a puppy kindergarten class right now that doesn't have any skills in it that I'm worried about teaching. You know, sit down, walk on a leash, easy fun things, recalls. Um, the reason she's in the class is because I want her to work around other dogs early. And the reason is she has a high responsiveness to other dogs. She cares about them. She thinks they're important. So she sees another dog and she can become fixated on it. She wants to go to it. She never feels neutral about other dogs. And so that's why I put her in a group class. She's not playing in the group class. I think playing in the group class for her would only heighten her responsiveness and therefore be counterproductive to why I signed up for the class. That doesn't mean that's the right answer for everybody. And it doesn't mean it's the right answer for every puppy. So it's basically, what do they show me they're ready to learn? When her body awareness starts to show me that she can do things like um, more advanced fitness stuff, posture work, front and back feet target at the same time, then we'll, then we'll do those things. When her body awareness shows me that we can maybe start to work on running on a target on the ground, then we will, then we will start to do those things. Right now, she's still kind of floppy and falls back into a sit. So I'm not doing any advanced kind of position work. Like I do sit down and stand um, for my obedience work and I want it really precise. And she just doesn't have that kind of body control yet to be that precise. So we keep working on those other pieces. She loves food and she loves toys and she doesn't really have conflict about switching between those two things. So I'm, I'm asking her to switch between those two things in public. And I'm working on some food specific 
skills for her as well as some toy specific skills like a retrieve and tugging but again that's because she showed me she was ready because she did because she throws the behavior at me she shows me that the behavior exists somewhere in her repertoire anyway I am not a huge fan of doing a bunch of cone work, wrapping around cones. Um, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of frustration-based chase-me-down kind of things. She has done a couple of restrained recalls just because I wanted her to do some recalls, so I had somebody hang on to her. Um, but I don't want big frustration responses, so we don't do a ton of them. I do see a lot of puppies being asked to do multi-wraps around objects, start to get um, really frustrated about that. You should see my inbox full of dogs that have a poisoned response, a big loud response to being asked to do a multi-wrap. That's not an accident, okay? So she's also learning to offer behaviors when she wants something, okay? So I'm teaching her, you know, if I've got a toy and you want it, show me, show me what you got. That started with, four feet on the floor and now I produce the toy rather than leaping at the toy. Um, and now it's it's merged into sit down, do a nose target, now have the toy. And it's also merging to get on a thing in order to get the, the toy. If she shows me she can be very, very smart about offering behaviors with toys, I might teach her some things with toys. But so far she's smarter about offering behaviors for food. So we do most of our training for food. Essentially, Sam, there is no timeline. You have to watch what the puppy shows you they're ready to do. And the most important thing is that comparing yourself, comparing where she's at and what she knows to others is your fastest recipe for disaster. It is the fastest way for you to push her too hard, make some big mistakes and end up where you don't want to be. So the most important thing is ask her what she knows in comparison to what you would like her to know and then kind of make your make your steps in between there and so i hope that helps and thank you so much for all of your questions thanks for listening please be sure to rate review and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice and if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers.